Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, welcome to the 270th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Meredith Kirkman, Delete Berkowitz, Meredith Bragg, and James Flores. Thanks, everyone. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we have Danielle Lesovitz on the show. She is a very talented, very fun to talk to director. She's only the second female director from the U.S. After Sofia Coppola to have her feature film invited as an official selection of the Cannes Film Festival. And by the way, it was her second movie at the Cannes Film Festival. She had written a film the year before called Mobile Homes. Her film that was her directorial feature debut that was at Cannes is called Port Authority. It's awesome. I watched it and it is uh, about a young man in New York that is lost and trying to figure out what he's doing in the world. And he falls in love with a trans dancer and it's uh, it's awesome. It's a, it's a whole world that Danielle created there. The movie started out tiny, ended up being EP'd by this guy named Martin Scorsese. And it took me about an hour to figure out from Danielle how exactly she got him on board. But you <laughs> will find that out yeah. if you listen to this episode. Yeah, it's cool. It's like, uh, this is the sort of indie that, you know, I love to have on the show. It's got such a great perspective. Danielle really understands independent filmmaking and uh, why pe- why audiences will watch her film, why she wants to make it. It's kind of like a soup to nuts masterclass on the intention behind filmmaking, right? Like from, from a careerist and commercial perspective, all the way down to the, the most altruistic or, or artistic versions as well. Can you guess my favorite part, Matt? Um, favorite thing she told, she would talk to us about. I would bet it's about the development process and how she went from script to getting that grant money and, and uh, getting her film greenlit. Oh, wait, no, that's my favorite part. What's yours? Yeah. My, mine was when she talked about how she writes and that she tries to do as little plot, like oh, move yes. the story forward as little as possible in dialogue and as much as possible in action. And I just love that. I love I love it so much. And I think in the interview, I'm quiet for a long time because I'm reeling from that idea. You know, it's just, uh, and she goes on to explain it and talk about it much more. But like, it's rare that we get such a nugget that is both actionable and kind of uh, woo-woo. Like enlightening. Right? It's the merger of what Matt and Oren are both looking for in an interview in one concise moment it was great it was really really wonderful yeah yeah i will say from a technical standpoint the audio could have been better i think matt's audio is a little a little thin we had some other audio issues so you might hear a little bit of feedback but 
Overall, I sound great, and I think most people are tuning in to hear me. So that's right, that's right. And so also, uh, I would say that this is maybe our my favorite episode in a long, long time. I was ready to quit. <laughs> Your favorite post-COVID episode. <laughs> that's for sure. So Danielle's film Port Authority is actually out right now. It just came out, and you can watch it on VOD anywhere. It's on iTunes, Google Play, all that stuff. It's on Spectrum. So check it out if you can, because then this interview will make even more sense. But but I think it's pretty good a pretty good interview, even if you've not watched the movie yet. Uh, maybe it'll yeah. convince you to watch it. I think it will. I think it will. Yeah. Well, before we chat to Danielle herself, though, I know that you would like me to know mm-hmm. what you've been working on lately. Ain't it the truth? Yeah, I'm in the process of delivering my wife's feature. What are you doing, New Year's? Title to be determined, actually. We might be shifting it around a little bit. Do you have to call it my wife's feature because she directed it, even though you produced it? Wouldn't, like, if you were not married to her, wouldn't you say my feature or the feature I produced? Or? Uh, yeah, the feature I produced, I guess, maybe is, is probably... I guess it's worth clarifying because we're on a directing podcast where I talk about directing all the time. And so I did not direct this film. I produced this film along with Beatrice Shaheen. Anyway... The point is, we've been doing all sorts of cleanup. You know, we're in the the process of delivering it to the distributor, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, that's all sorts of paperwork and making sure all of our clearances and this and that. And one of the main things that I've been working on post-wise is is all of the VFX cleanup. And Oren, you've been so helpful in terms of uh, guiding me through some of the hardest shots, uh, which has been really great. But I thought it would be worth it to talk to people just about the the act of doing these VFX, I think, has kind of opened my mind to where I want to be as an artist in this particular discipline. And I think that there are a lot of filmmakers out there that will relate, maybe not specifically to VFX, but maybe, or maybe it's to camera, maybe it's to art or something like that. But But as a director, I think it's really valuable to have... Uh, to be conversant in a in a in a craft or in a in a discipline, but also there's something so empowering about being able to roll your sleeves up and do certain shots yourself, so that you are not dependent on a budget or another producer or just even another person, generally speaking, to do that sort of work. And oftentimes, I think that filmmakers want to, if they've got a knack for camera, all of a sudden they're just a cinematographer, right? We were talking off mic about how like you're very good. You you do you know side gigs here and there as as a VFX artist. So you're just a, a bona fide capital V VFX artist. But like camera is a good example of something where it's like you have no aspirations to, to be a DP in any capacity, but also are handy enough that if you need an insert shot and someone tells you we we can't afford that or we can't do that or we don't have the time to do that or whatever you can go do it in your backyard. Yeah, and I do really enjoy camera operating. I know we talked to various directors that have operated on their own movies, and there is some controversy to that. But yeah, I I think what I said off mic is I just don't want to be in charge of the camera department. I don't want to need to know like exactly what the settings are and how we're going to store the footage and what the exposure is and all that stuff. But like, I love... Uh, the physicality of holding the camera and pointing at things. Yeah, and I guess I'm I'm talking more about philosophically speaking, it's just empowering to be able to do those jobs yourself, even if you aren't interested in doing them outside of your own projects. Right, which actually I had a, a thought on that. 
you know, you're doing the visual effects on your own movie because obviously you're going to be cheaper than hiring a VFX house to do how many shots are in your movie? Like 80 shots or something? Oh, it's north of 100. And and most of them, if if I got a quote back on most of these shots, even if they were a dollar a shot, I'd probably be like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's only because my time is free that I would ever endeavor to, you know, fix the continuity on the the clock behind a character or something like that. Like these are these are teeny tiny fixes. These are effectively like if I had time on set to clean up the art thing, you know, to move this thing two inches to the right or clear that thing, I wouldn't be doing the shot in the first place. Right. Yeah. I think kind of a classic example is when the editor uses a take that you like a little bit less than another take and you ask them why and they say, oh, because we saw this, you know, uh, the boom mic in Mm -hmm. the reflection. Boom shadows or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so as a director that knows a little bit of VFX, you say, just give me the take that's better and I'll remove the boom reflection. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so what's interesting is that at some point you're working on some client work or a branded series or something with a little bit of a budget and these VFX shots start creeping up and they're mostly things that you want. You don't like the art direction on the wall. You don't like the expression on this person's face. You don't like that this person blinked so many times or that they nodded their head down at the end of the take so you want to just like freeze frame their head while the rest of the shot keeps moving maybe you want to stabilize something even though it doesn't bother anyone else but you as one of the creatives on the project care about it you will basically generate this vfx list and at some point on some projects this has happened to me many times on things i've directed i end up getting paid to do some of these visual effects you know the producers (laughs) feel so guilty and they're like okay we'll just throw you like two grand or something and we know you're doing like 30 visual effects and i'm like okay i would definitely do them for free because there are things i want and nobody else seems to care about but if you want to pay me i'll get paid and i do suspect that even though you're talking about this thing as like a side thing you're doing a little bit for fun a little bit for learning a little bit for saving money on these things you're being nitpicky about I suspect that in the future, especially if you do some commercial things or something, at some point you'll have a boom mic in your shot or a C-stand or whatever, and you will just remove it because you want to use the better take or the wider shot or whatever, and then some producer will say, hey, we had a little extra money in the budget, so we're going to give you 500 bucks for those shots you did. So Look, I, I'd take it for so sure. It's, yeah, it's worth having even from a financial point of view. I, I believe it will come in handy at some point. Well, and I think that there's a... a a definition of directing that's just caring about the things no one else cares about. Right. Because I think that cumulatively, like who cares about like what color their sweater is or who cares if the lighting looks good or who cares if that performance was a little bit off, you know, that, that list of things of people who are just like, you know, have a get it done mentality and aren't worried about the artistry, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they're jaded or they're behind schedule or, or whatever. Like it's our job to push back on that stuff and to get it right. And though no one is going to watch any of the shots that I have done in this movie and think, oh, the movie would be consequentially worse with that hole in the wall or that tiny distracting art problem, right? No one would ever say like, oh boy, the, the ugly Greek on that refrigerator was distracting to me or the, the made the movie worse. But they might subconsciously be distracted by it, notice it in the moment and not pay attention to the joke or the emotional beat. And those tiny little distractions 
add up to something that even though an audience member doesn't have the vocabulary to explicitly say why they didn't like the movie as much as they could have, they just are, they just are left with that feeling of moderate disappointment or, or just mild misunderstanding of why this movie didn't meet its potential. Right. But some people do notice it. Like I noticed those stuff. Sure. Those things for sure. And when you make a movie, when you make a short, when you make a commercial, when you make Instagram content or whatever, of course you're making it for the world. You want as many people to see it and like it and enjoy it and be moved by it. But you are also making it for other filmmakers, for producers, for clients, for agencies, for you know, like the uh, Danielle's movie that she's talking about on this episode is EP'd by Martin Scorsese. I'm sure Martin Scorsese sees a scene and if there's an uneven performance or weird lighting or like continuity issues or weird art direction, he's like, yeah, you know, that's not great. Yeah. Our peers, essentially, is what yeah. you're saying. Not, not that we're like, oh, we're peers with Martin Scorsese, but like people who do have the trained eye to see and diagnose what could be better about your movie. Yeah, and sometimes I might be in a situation where someone's like, hey, Oren, can you recommend a director? We need a female redhead director that understands period pieces and kind of relationship drama um, and that is really good with art direction. And then I'm like, oh, well, I know Chrissy, Matt's wife. She could probably do all those things, but I want to show you some scenes from her movie, but the art direction is kind of weird because there's this weird thing on the wall and I don't want that to throw you. So all those little details that only we care about ultimately... And you see this really a lot in the commercial world, like the top end commercial world, like people care about every color, about the framing, about but all that also, stuff. Oren, you did VFX on Oscar winning movies this last year where, you know, the, the lay person, a regular person, or even a person with my skill set, let's say, would look at the shot and not know what's wrong with it. Do you know what I mean? Before, you mean before the VFX. The VFX. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that the cleanup is so meticulous that it can be invisible even to people who are well-trained. Well, no, but I mean, a lot of what I did was remove reflections of crew and gear, right? And actually in um, Silver Linings Playbook, you know that movie? Sure, Uh, of course. There is a shot where you see the Steadicam operator in the mirror. Oh, really? Yeah, in the ballet studio or in the dance studio. And it's like... It, you know, people post about it on Twitter and it's not a bad thing. It's like still oh, this amazing movie, you know. You must but. have seen the memes about there's just a dude in the back of Mandalorian, a uh, shot of the Mandalorian. <laughs> uh, no, but have I mean, you, we all know. Have about, you not seen that, sh- that photo? I don't think I've seen that. Dude, we all it's know. the funniest. It's funnier than the Starbucks cup in, in Game of Thrones. Right. Because okay, it's yeah. just a guy. And also it's so big. It's It's the same mentality of like, how did no one see this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Oh, I was just saying the details. Like when you are with your friends and you are, you know, just kind of starting out and you're not in like a real filmmaking community yet and you're just showing your parents things and your friends think you're insane because you are worried about a weird shadow somewhere. You're not insane is all I'm saying. Like even though your friends don't care about those details, like at some point as you're climbing the ladder and showing people what you care about as a director and a filmmaker, people will, those those tiny details do start adding up. So Back to your original point, I do think as a director, it's great, obviously, to know editing, like the number one thing I think you should know uh, if you have to add one thing to your oeuvre. And then I do think on like piggybacking on editing is some rudimentary visual effects just to replace the screen, even if you're temping things in to show people and test out and edit. I think it's like so important. And uh, 
I remember Mitch and Phil, our friends who are directors, they did this, this horror film forever ago. And, you know, we realized that there's these vampire moments that if we just like pull out one frame, you know, here and there, every time somebody moves or does something like it has such a big impact, even though it's subconscious, I, I think, you know, kind of wrapping all this conversation up, like even those tiny visual effects that you're doing just for yourself, like they do add up to without a doubt way better stuff. I think that the the shots that that you worked on make the joke land more, right? Because like oh the smoke stuff, yeah. Specifically, like sometimes you know we shot a lot of things practically, and then you accentuated them, but taking it, elevating it to making it like a little bit more extreme, a little bit more prevalent, a little more apparent, makes the emotional beat of the characters reacting to clearer and funnier, you know more impactful and so i think that that's the other thing look you know we're talking about all of the technical details the the same skills that you're honing as a craftsperson on the technical end you need to be crafting in a story and performance and all of that stuff as well but it's interesting to be so far into post to be able to kind of continue to plus the movie in ways where you've crafted the performance as much as you can you've crafted the story as much as you can like you know you're still all of that stuff has to be in place. No one's ever going to watch this movie and go, wow, the VFX were great. That's why I watched this movie. Certainly not. They're going to be moved and they'll laugh and they'll think it's funny and charming and all of those things. But like, but the the craft gets out of the way of the storytelling, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in like every, you know, the score can help you fix something. The Obviously, sound design the effects, but even like the color grade, like, oh, every time we cut to this shot, I'm looking at the wrong thing. Like I should be looking at this. And then I would notice that. And if you just kind of move the balance of the brightness, you can get people's eye to look at stuff. I'm excited if we were in the grade right now as well. And the movie is, I'd say 5% better because of it. You know, the mood, the tone, it's great. It's really exciting. So I'll keep you posted everyone, but, uh, but that was just my rant on the effects. So if you're ever like doing anything and you're like, ah, is this even worth it? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Even if it, you literally never end up doing that work yourself, being able to talk with the craft craftsperson or department or whomever that uh, that you're working with, they'll appreciate you your level of understanding that much more. Well, cool. On that note, if you are appreciating these tips about VFX, if you're excited to hear about movies like Daniel Lesovitz's Port Authority. If you feel like you get anything from our mumbling on a weekly basis, 270 weeks in a row, then check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash justshootitpod. It's where you can give us a dollar, two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars. We'll get you a Just Shoot It hat. I saw someone just posted a picture of one of our original Just Shoot It stickers I, uh, on yeah. Instagram. That was Pretty cool. impressive, yeah. Anyhow, we really appreciate it. It's the way that you send us a little note telling us... Uh, you appreciate us. And if you don't want to do that, then maybe just email us. Just shoot a pod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Or you could even, we're going to do a Q&A episode soon. And it's been a long time since we've received a voicemail. Give us a call. 262-SHOOT-1. Yeah. Okay. Now we're going to speak to Danielle. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We just watched Port Authority. Congratulations. I read it's the, only the second American film to ever be invited to Cannes. It feels like an incredibly well-researched film. Like it feel, Everything in it feels so real, so authentic. After I watched it, I had to look up all the actors to see if they were actors or just real people you happen to like film on the street. So can you tell us a little bit about how you found the movie and and how you prepared for making it? Because your, you know, your audience is made up of of filmmakers as well and people who are like kind of trying to get those first features out just in full disclosure. I think I was always attracted to films that felt achievable to me. You know, I was like, what if I had ten dollars? what could I make a film with? Like how, what kind of films could I make? And so I was always interested in more like, you know, that mix between documentary, but also like European, like art house cinema, which sometimes feels like it's made for very little, even though maybe it's not, but it's more grounded in that way. And so from, I think from this, in terms of my influences and my just general approach to things was like, okay, that, that sort of sphere where I'm going to get like millions and millions of dollars to ever make a film is not going to happen. I'm going to accept that quickly. But what, what can I do that I think is beautiful and interesting, given that I'm not going to have, you know, my millions of dollars to like create cool, I don't know, stunts or whatever I could, could want. So just starting out with those constraints influenced, I think, who I am and, and also how that film came to be so yeah I mean origin story of the film is just I I came to New York for film school but I always wanted to live in New York I grew up in the Midwest so New York was this very like big exotic place for me and so sort of right after film school I was dealing with a lot of like personal tragedy let's say and was invited to a ball um, and had just one of these like big you know cathartic experiences it's hard to put into language without sounding cheesy about it 
and uh, and sort of immediately had the idea for the film. Wait, and so by a by a ball, do you mean is it kind of like one of these dance show events, like what is portrayed in the film? Yeah, yeah, just like a, a gathering of people who are you know competing for prizes and in houses, and it was in Manhattan actually. And a friend of mine invited me and. Yeah, and I went and I saw, there was like one particular moment when someone was doing a kind of a duck walk. And um, man, it was crazy because I felt like I saw, I saw like something in them take flight. They went beyond the physical realm. I don't know how else to say that without sounding cheesy. They transcended their own physicality. And I for a second saw, wow, these like, little bodies that we in are we're in they're so limited you know there's like a gender and there's a color to them and they you know they can jump and walk and do these things but they're actually not necessarily the fullness of who we are they're kind of just like one aspect and we tend to over identify with them at least i do just in terms of you know gender and race but also like time you know like we're born in this time but we could have been born in another time you know, so like all of those sources of identity felt somehow way more fluid to me. And the body felt like this sort of random thing that we are just like born into, but we give so much importance to for whatever reason. So yeah, so there was that. And then was that a world that you had ever known about before? Or was it just kind of like on a whim you went with a friend? It was a it was I mean, I knew about it through ball. like Paris's burning, but I didn't realize it was still so active. It, it was a kiki ball. So it was it was for younger people, which is a distinction. I don't think the film makes well, but there's the main ballroom kind of scene. And then there's the kiki ballroom scene, which is for younger people. And it's, it's really geared more towards like, a safe, sort of safety and um, expression and sort of healthy habits around sexuality. So it was it was a kiki ball. And um, yeah, I just kind of stumbled into it. Although I knew of like Paris's building burning, and I knew of the scene, I just didn't realize how big and how active and how important it was uh, still. And so you you started writing the screenplay you said about a year later. I guess I'm curious because, and Matt and I talked a little bit about this before you came on. Like you go, you see this glimpse of this other world that you find kind of fascinating. I think, you know, a lot of our first reaction would be like, oh, I don't know enough about that world. Like why, would, why am I the person to tell the story of that world as opposed to someone you know, that lives and breathes it every day. Like, can you tell us about how you, like how you researched it and how you kind of came to even start writing the script and give yourself permission to, yeah. to be Yeah, I mean, the, the big question that? is, will people let me tell this story too? And I think we do have, and for very valid reasons, ideas of like representation and who can say what and who can talk about what uh, that are important to honor. But let's see. So one of the helpful things was that I was not in the US when I decided to write it. I was outside of it in Italy. And so I gave myself permission to sort of kind of step outside of my Americanness, if that makes any sense. And and to be like, oh well, I do have this perspective that is different. I think I I think I should write about it. And I spent like just sort of two weeks. And I think that was the important thing is like just two weeks to write the first draft. So if you don't give yourself much time, then you also don't have much time to be critical of yourself. And was that a self imposed deadline? Yeah. Or was there any external driving force for those two weeks or it was just like, oh, you just set a personal goal? Yeah, there, I think there was a random grant that I was could apply for that I knew I was never going to get. But I just used that as a deadline anyways. And I don't think I submitted, actually, because the first draft was I mean, it was terrible. It was the worst 
it was gross in terms of how bad it was but that's i'm know. fond of the the vomit draft yeah exactly that's exactly yeah. what it was yeah. and the, and i just i didn't yeah. really sleep that much i just kind of went um into that world you know and when you do that you're you, you tend to access parts of yourself that you don't actually consciously get to all the time because you're just forcing yourself to go and invent in places that like you just don't normally do so so i gave myself permission to do to one write the draft and to do do a really bad draft and were you just filling in the parts that you didn't know and or hadn't researched yet just kind of imagining what you think maybe where a person like this lives or how they talk or what the rehearsal looks like right yeah and it was it was just really bad and the character of paul was just like a set of eyes like looking at things like it wasn't even he wasn't even a character at that point but i felt like it would all be filled in eventually right. and paul is just for people that are listening just to give people a little context so paul is he's a new very young man that's been had the trouble past that has just landed in manhattan to try to find his sister who wants very little to do with him and he meets a few other people that kind of through the shelter he's staying at right and he's he's caucasian and you know, ha has a certain kind of innocence and uh, naivety to him. And he's kind of discovering this new world of um, just very colorful people, you know, in, in, in many different ways. Yeah. And then I did, I think it's important, at least now, and maybe it'll change, but like, I did want to recognize that as an American, we encounter so many different, especially in a New Yorker, we encounter so many different cultures and they're such a deep part of our lives that it's weird to say you cannot use that in your work because you're like, but that's what it is to be American. That's what it is to like live in the world these days. So how can I reduce myself down to this tiny sliver of what's sort of politically, maybe you, you deem as politically correct to, to write about or talk about. It's like, no, damn it, I'm an American. I want to write about my place and my culture and all that while recognizing that I am, you know, not someone who grew up in the ballroom community. I'm not, you know, as, you know, wise experience is not my experience. I'm also not like a white cis guy. So you could say like, why are you writing this story? And it's all to say that even if you aren't sort of, you don't have the social signifiers of your characters or your protagonist, it's likely that um, you've met these people. It's likely that you've loved these people. It's likely that you've interacted with these characters in such a way where you do have some insight into who they <laughs> are and that you can relate to and identify with them just by the nature of your being human um, and having the empathy and um, imaginative capacity to walk in someone else's shoes that I, I think, you know, if you interrogate your own intentions enough, your own experience enough, and I, I think that one can come to, how do you say, their own ideas of what's okay to talk about in their work, if that makes any sense. That said, like a year after I wrote the first draft, I spent a good year and a half meeting to talking with every day living with you know like a, a trans women of color so that i could older generations young kids just like to you know to really explore the the spectrum of of that experience and how it hits different people differently what it means you know to experience that at different times how it's changed what still needs to change so that 
you know, the initial impulse was great, but like there was a lot of work done. And, and, and the same with the Paul's character, you know, meeting a lot of kids from Pennsylvania, Ohio, who didn't have a family structure, who were sort of alone in the world, what, you know, what their life was like. I mean, all of this just came through a lot of just work and, and meeting people and trying to almost like a painter understand what it was that you're painting and, and being as, um, as sensitive to that as possible. What I love about that is that there are kind of some teachable moments that I think are relatively universal, right? Because really what you're saying is you had this moment of, of transcendence, this inspiration that, that moved you deeply, right? And then, you know, you took that inspiration and galvanized it into something, into a first draft, and then took the next step, right, of really immersing yourself into that world. And, and I, what I love to, you said, you interrogating your intentions, right? Like that to me is the key to doing that sort of honest work, right? And I think that that's how you can be clear with yourself about whether or not it's, then you know whether or not you feel like you're being appropriative or, or tokenistic or, you know, there's a lot of things that I can, you know, people get worried about whenever they're writing about something that's not literally their experience. But I think your point is true. Like, we're all writers. We're all using our imagination. So if you're honest with yourself about being, you know, as authentic as possible and then also doing the work thereafter, I think that that, that can be something, no matter what you're writing about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's really a, a balance. That's interesting, for sure. Because you, you could kill, like, a generation of artists if you say to them only only write about this you can only write about your own experience like right. you're killing you're killing what is probably genius you know so on on the same hand at the same time like being respectful and being um honest about you know your own blind spots i think is also important and saying hey you know and i think it's true of the film is like there are blind spots in it they're going to be blind but in anything because you know we're not like omnipotent omniscient viewers of things we have biases and we have you know subjectivity so you know i think allowing for that to be and saying let's talk about it this is great is also an important part of kind of how we grow culturally and as as filmmakers yeah and you have this device in your movie which is i think a pretty common like a, a smart way to approach things is you have this person that is seeing the world in the first time in the same way that you maybe saw it the first time, you know, and learning about it. I always think of like Mad Men, like when Peggy in the very first day, she's take, you know, it's her first day at work. Like in all these shows and movies and things, it's like today's this so-and-so's first day of work. So we can teach them about this whole world. And you do like an awesome job of, of getting us in there in the super space natural way. That's really cool. Yeah, I... I made this movie years ago about this deaf UFC fighter and I like knew literally nothing about the UFC and I had never even like met a deaf person before. And I had this just discomfort in the beginning of why am I even telling the story? You know, I have no connection to either one of these things. And then I would always just think of Danny Boyle making Slumdog Millionaire. You know, you can't get more come from two opposite ends of the world. I mean, I guess they maybe are on the same hemisphere or something i think there there's something super cool about it and I, I love just everything you said about even being in italy and just giving yourself permission to explore this world and then it's not just about i think when a movie like this is bad is when you just shoot that first draft of yours without actually 
doing the research and going to the place and meeting the people Danielle's eyes and making it feel real. Just the thought of shooting that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, well, a little bit about the production, which I thought I thought it's kind of interesting that you, you what you kind of opened this up with before you even talked about Port Authority, your movie, is that you always look at a project to, uh, to see whether it's accomplishable or doable. You know, like you like you're going to assume that you're not going to get you know thirty million dollars from Sony or whatever to make this movie. So how can I do make this movie? But Port Authority, like the very opening scene takes place in a train station in New York City in Manhattan, you know, potentially like one of the most iconic, expensive, busy places in the world. Like you instantly have scope to your film. Like you could tell me that that movie was made for millions of dollars and I would believe it, even though it has such an intimate, like kind of personal feel. You have like a bazillion locations. You have a million extras. You're it's so colorful. You're shooting night and day, interior, exterior. Um, Honestly, I would all over the place. Stunts. I'd, I'd be curious to know because there's a, the world where I can imagine you effectively just stealing that scene. You know what I mean? Just being run and gun, super stealth mode. That is easier for me to believe than like, no, no, we shot the whole station down. Those are all actors. We lit everything. You know, it's like the thirty million dollar version is harder to believe than the you know one point five million dollar version in my mind. Well, right, because I mean, it's like the, what we're seeing feels like the documentary version, even though it's it's not a documentary. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So I, I was always I was like, uh, film school is great. So I'm going to get access to student loans, and I can use those student <laughs> loans to finance my first feature. I think the Polish brothers, the Polish brothers had a similar story where I think they got a grant to like buy a computer and made their first film with it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I was I was sort of like um, it was psychologically important to be like worst case scenario, I'm gonna take that extra money that I took out, grab myself a camera, get some friends together, and we'll run and gun and make this ourselves. And I really thought that that was how it was gonna be made for a long time, even after the first draft. But I don't know, I think there's something like when you when you have that confidence, when you're like, ah, it's gonna be made, I'm gonna make it myself. And people are like, oh, but you know, why don't you, we, we can help you, that sort of thing. And you just kind of keep going and then find that people wanna join. And that's a really cool feeling. Um, but for me, you know, it, it ended up being like a script that I was gonna do myself. And then all of a sudden you have money to make it and that brings with it its own complexities because it is the case that we did, you know, rent out Port Authority and those are background and it all, you know, it became, how do you say, um, formally formalized by, by the production, which is a good thing. And also like a frustrating thing, to be honest, if you're like, I could have sure. gone in, like I've stolen stuff before. I could have gone in with my like, yeah whatever grab my phone let's go yeah yeah can i unpack the the statement of you had that confidence the train is moving as a as a common refrain we hear from people right like that's when people want to join on but and then you said and you found yourself in the circumstances where you had money so let, fill in that gap for us a little bit like just you know you don't have to go super in depth but how did people realize that you were making the film how did money kind of come in just the, the Cliff Notes version of that. Yeah. Well, it's also one of those things where it's like, uh, why would anyone in the U.S. give me money? <laughs> that w- I mean, just I'm sure. just honest. Like, who am I? There's so many people who are getting into these Sundance Labs. There's like two slots. There's a whole country of like filmmakers. 
there's no I, so i immediately was like okay not us not gonna be a place for me which is weird because i'm american but i was you know i was like europe europe <laughs> europe because all the films i love are really like french or italian and i and i was i was really fortunate enough to in film school to write for a french director um who film got made and then afterwards the producer came to me and was like what are you working on next so there was that you wrote a, f a feature or yeah i covered a feature uh mobile homes that yeah that was also at can like two years before port authority okay so you had cachet I, yeah, I had some cachet from that, but I sent the script to the Torino Film Lab in Italy, which is a really incredible and important lab for upcoming filmmakers from around the world. And they don't, I mean, they're starting now, but before before me, they, they really weren't looking at American filmmakers because American filmmakers weren't looking at them, I think. So went to that lab, asked the French producer but mobile homes hadn't gone to ken yet so they just made the film said i need a producer to go to this lab with will you come with me she of course like didn't speak english so i had to get a translator <laughs> you know it was my partner who does speak french and i was like can you call virginie and ask her in french okay so we're as a american who doesn't speak french and a french producer doesn't speak english we arrive <laughs> To Italy together. You're like downloading. Right. You're just sending go. emojis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mainly this one. You're right. And so everyone is like, face. what are you guys doing together here? And we're like, oh, je sais pas. <laughs> you know, like, um, <laughs> yeah, those emojis. Um, but there was a kind of secret confidence. We felt like, like. Wait, so you had, you had been accepted to the Torino script lab is that what it was yeah called? it's it was called the uh frame frameworks which is the feature they i think there's like set 12 projects it's a bit like sundance in europe it's a really great lab and yeah so we go there and yeah. it but it, there's a sort of component of development you know where that you develop the script you meet with other directors you meet with just all the aspects of production they kind of allow you to have conversations about how you want your film to look and feel. So it's a, it's, it's really, it's really nice. And then afterwards you, you sort of pitch the, the project to industry professionals in Europe and yeah, and we did well, like we won some awards and we met our, like Bobby Allen from movie there. We met MK2, who was our sales agent in, in Europe. And then after that, Virginie, our uh, producer, Virginie Lacombe, uh, submitted the film to the CNC Cinema du Monde uh, grant in France and we won that award. Super dumb question, but do you have to like translate your script to French to submit it to all these places? Yes, I believe so. So just Google translate. Exactly. No, there, there's some good AI translators <laughs> these days. Um, I, maybe I'm wrong with yeah, that. Yeah. I might, it might, for Cinema du Monde, it might not be. I do know that the, the script was translated into French a fair amount of times. And you have a French producer, so, you know, they can give it a once-over. She's like, I don't yeah. get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love the idea of, of your producer just, like, rewriting things that you two disagree exactly. on. Exactly. Just like, ha-ha, no. <laughs> I have the last word now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that, so that makes sense, though, right? So, like, you know, you build that momentum by having that can-do attitude, but then the combination of cachet from your previous film that you wrote, plus these grant, uh, the the lab create facilitates grants, and then that, that momentum. That makes sense as to how you 
woke up one day and you're like, oh my goodness, now now we do have money. What do I do now? Right? Yeah, that's and the, a ton of work is yeah 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 the, yeah not not to breeze over it, but like that's that's the missing factor. I think that um, it's a lot of work, but it's really exciting. You know, you feel like you're on some crazy adventure it's really fun but i guess at this point are you still kind of skating by on like college student loans like are you working on the side do you have like are you writing or making your shorts like how are you making money or i guess you're getting grants also yeah well from some of these things right no i haven't gotten grants recent i i did i did get a new york a new york state grant for port authority so the process the process of i was able to kind of support myself from the monies that I got making the film, but not well, you know, it's, it's like four years of nonstop work. And I think what you end up at the end of it is, is really like, uh, it's kind of sad if you think about it. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I like, I could have been flipping burgers and technically made more money. Exactly. A little bit. Yeah. It's pretty true. So I did some commercial work and now I do still like I shot a campaign for Ferragamo shoes recently, like a few weeks ago in Italy, Italy, man, uh, <laughs> Italy provides now. Um, so yeah, little, like little jobs here and there I was doing, like at the time I was working, making shorts for like architecture firms, uh, in New York, <laughs> weirdly enough. But I found that the kind of freelance writing, that balance of the two was too crazy. And so I transitioned into teaching because I can yeah. sort of be on a journey of like discovering my own process and other works along with people. So it feels like it's a natural part of my process somehow. And I can talk about things with people. And, you know, I even let like students read scripts and of my work and workshop scenes with them just to like prep myself. So you're like, okay, yeah, I read your stuff. It sucks. Let's read my script. Okay, you, you're playing Y. You're playing Paul. Let's do this. Let's get this on its feet. Yeah. I, well, it, tomorrow. Though, it is, I think, really valuable. It's, it's valuable for people to hear that like having multiple in incomes and like different revenue streams is part of, of that indie filmmaker life. And they can be nourishing. It can be part of your process, you know? And it, again, it tends to be something that we don't talk about a ton, you know? Yeah. And just kind of that, the endless, you, you know, like you can have a film at con and then you still are teaching, you know, because it, it's not, it's not a one, one, thing fixes everything right it's like about the journey of your career yeah and maybe that's something so we, too that i never i never i almost made a, a pact with myself that i would never do filmmaking for money right so i i'm willing to do lots of yeah, other things for money yeah. i'm willing to write for other directors and i'm happy to i'm willing to make short form work for you know brands i'm willing to like teach i'm willing to do lots of crazy stuff in which like I give parts of my soul, but not all of it, if that makes any sense. But I'm happy to have that clear with myself because I, again, when it comes to interrogating intentions, if you say to yourself, I'm doing this thing because I love it and I don't actually see myself making money doing this thing, I'm just doing it because it's my own personal way of expressing my experience in life, then there's a kind of purity about what you're doing and also a realism in the sense of like cinema isn't a way to make money for most of us. It's a passion, you know, it's a passion and it maybe should 
stay that way. And maybe, you know, who knows, maybe I'll make like a big giant Marvel film, but I'll always want to tell stories that I are important to me, whether or not, you know, whether I self-finance them and they make no money whatsoever is it's just not about money for me. Yeah. I, I you know, I, a thing that we've heard a lot is like, there's a difference between your art and doing something with your artistry. Right. Like, and so I think, you know, Warren and I work commercially quite a, quite a bit. And I think like you can be engaged and excited and passionate about work for hire. And, but I love the way that you differentiate or reclassify the two, right? Like there's your art and then there's the things that you're, that you do for money that are. Yeah. And I like that you're saying, yeah, yeah, the things you do for money are not soulless. They're just less a, a piece of your soul. Yeah. A piece of your soul. You're like putting yourself in a position to support others. Right. And you don't, you know, what it is that they choose to do with your talents is up to them somehow, you know, and you're hopefully hoping not to be too exploited in that exchange. But it is, yeah, I think it's a beautiful life for sure. For sure. It's a beautiful life. I think to have those moments to be able to do your work and to have those moments where you're supporting other people in their work. It's really nice. I think if you go into being like, I'm going to be a great filmmaker and I'm going to be super loaded and super famous, I think you're going to be very frustrated. Yeah. There's also, I, I feel like, so we've interviewed, you know, close to 300 filmmakers on the podcast. There is something about the people that are really going for something super commercial in the beginning that seem to kind of be spinning their wheels until they go for something a little more personal. I think kind of your attitude is is what we've heard from a lot of successful filmmakers of just kind of approaching which project to make and which project to fight for and which project to just kind of do for the for the money and for the learning experience and, you know, to hang out with some people <laughs> for a couple of days. I, I have some questions about the production of Port Authority specifically and, and, and maybe partially the, the writing process as well, because Orin and I were talking off mic about, you know, how naturalistic everything is, especially certainly the camera work. But I think the dialogue that can pop for both of us is something that's just it feels so off the cuff that, you know, maybe some of it's improvised, maybe some of it's not. And how sometimes when you look at that style of dialogue on the page, it can feel, you know, like, like not a ton is happening, quote unquote, right? When people are just naturally speaking to one another, there's a lot of like, yes, and I don't know, and stuff that like, when it's in stark black and white, maybe doesn't have as much meaning imbued into it, right? Can you talk to us about uh, the process of writing naturalistic dialogue, what was improvised, what was on the page, and, and kind of how it evolved? Yeah, sure. I mean, I generally like to make sure that dialogue isn't carrying story, just in general. I tend to say, um, place action or conflict, and maybe it's a bit too much in Port Authority, but like in in sort of glances or physicality or uh, just anything visual. So I I like to think that the story is like hung, like the sort of, even though I think in Port Authority, the narrative beats are a little bit very subtle, I think, for a lot of people. Those beats are are made through action and through something you can see. And that frees me up to just kind of do whatever I want in the dialogue. And even on the page, the dialogue, 
it's really just like sounds that people make in order to hold the space for action, if that makes any sense. So with that, there's a lot of freedom to let other voices come in. Sounds like you took Aaron Sorkin's masterclass. <laughs> right. Um, I um, mean, that's it's, fascinating. How did you come up w- with that kind of uh, way of thinking, that philosophy? It, does it come from some of your docu work? Maybe. I th- but also, I think NYU is really good at training us in this way. A lot of the professors are like, cinema and filmmaking is much closer to painting than it is to, say, theater. And in an American mm-hmm. tradition, like theater is a space where, or medium, I guess you could say, where, where dialogue is the thing that the entire production is resting on. So if someone tells you, hey, this is this is like painting, this is not like theater, you begin to think about things in a more painterly way. And you sort of realize, okay, my the meat of my scene doesn't have any doesn't have to have anything to do with dialogue. And it just it just frees you up, you know? It just and then you you know you're forced to watch a lot of silent movies and you're forced to just see, okay, cinema is about gazes and cinema is about movement and it's not necessarily about talking so even paul's i mean i originally i wanted paul to be played by a non-actor and i just kind of wrote a bunch of dialogue thinking it would be filled in by someone else um and then finn was an actor and then so at the last one i was like oh damn i didn't actually take the time to really make this dialogue heightened because i just thought someone else would come in and, and say stuff. But still, this script within this, what you're calling it non-heightened dialogue is winning awards and getting you into programs and getting grants. Like, there's something that is still capturing people regardless of, I guess, if the dialogue is heightened or not, right? No, it's true. It's true. Yeah, because it's not, it's not really about the dialogue in the end, is it? I love that process and answer so much. It, it, to me, it just it, it's blowing my mind just in terms of like genuinely it's from it's the like, world of comedy where like yeah I don't even like, write joke, anything joke, about joke, the joke, camera. Joke. Like I, I start with dialogue. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been like, okay, master over, over, moving on. You know, um, in a way that's frustrating, certainly, but like, you know, when you're alting jokes, it's like that's kind of the way you have to shoot things because you're going to swap things around a little bit, but. But so just what I'm hearing is that the, the, beat, the story beats are all in description, right? In the action, right? Like it's, it's glances, like all of the, the, the back and forth of how our relationship evolves and how the plot progresses, you know, essentially tell silently. And so, you know, whether there's dialogue that says like, oh, I don't know, or huh, or what, like, you know that that stuff is going to get filled in. And it doesn't matter, right? Because the beats of like, you know, curiosity or like, apprehension or whatever the the specific scene is about you know that the meat of that story is already there so you just get to like flow naturally talk to us about how with that as a framework how do you approach coverage how do you approach camera Uh, just in fairness we didn't have a lot of time can you tell that totally that means different things for different people right like do you page count is that even a valuable metric for you in, in that sense Yes. So it was 24, but some of those are like half days and there were a lot of location moves. Like I, there were some scenes where I had like two takes to do them. I, I just, we literally, it was like, you have two hours to shoot this entire scene, right? No mm-hmm. rehearsal, not just, you're going to go and do it. So um, a lot of that, I mean, 
shot listing was my DP Jomo has this sort of script analysis method where you go through the dramatic beats, you go through the shifts of the character, you go through for every scene, like what, whose perspective is important and where does it change and why, and what are the interior ones and what are the exterior? So you kind of do a very granular script analysis. And then from that, you kind of, this is his process. And then we sort of talk about where we want to be when, and then we let everything else go somehow like where we want to be with the camera at what point like we want to capture this moment we want to see her we want to catch this his hand on this um, yeah yeah exactly and how we get there is less important than just the fact that we do get there and we talk about like does the same apply to lighting as well because there's you know the movie has a very striking look i mean it's very colorful in some scenes and like naturalistic in others is that part of the script analysis as well i don't know i mean to be honest that's part of Jomo's process that I'm less, I have less access to, but I do know that he will only augment natural sources. So if it doesn't exist in life, it's not going to be a source of light. Right. And there's a lot of this film, especially in the exteriors where there was, you know, you're just using what's there, um, not changing anything. So yeah, just letting things live, I think, was part of that. And even, like, when there are moments where, like, you know, in the pizza shop, right, where it's, like, this red, like, I didn't have a location for this. I had no idea where we were going to shoot it. I see the gaffer walking around. Like, literally, 10 people are following me, and I'm, like, literally trying to find a location for that thing that we're going to shoot the next day. We're on a tech scout, right? So it's it's beyond, it's past, you know, the just, like, location scanning. We're on a tech scout, in a certain place and we're like okay i know the scene needs to be shot somewhere in this area it could be shot at a bus stop could be shot you know next to a railing on some stairways i don't know and i'm looking and i'm walking around and i don't know if you know you guys probably know tech scouts you have like your whole crew behind you i'm literally walking and like like little ducklings everyone's following me i have no idea where we're going and i'm telling people this is the most awkward little dance i've ever done so weird like meh and then in the distance i see scott who's our gaffer like eating a piece of pizza and i was like gaffer's no good lighting i was like scott where did you get that pizza and he's like oh that pizza shot over there and i went and i was like i love it it's brilliant this red is fantastic and that's why that scene has color because scott ate a piece of pizza while we were doing a tech scout and you know happened to like know that he would probably be attracted to a place with good lighting i don't know Or he just likes pizza. That's awesome. So was the color, you watch your movie and it does feel like, and maybe this is just like you say, like just naturally occurs, but at night when he's at the balls, when he's at these kind of exploring this new world, the the lighting is very colorful. And then during the day, it's a lot more muted. That was in the script. I'll be honest. Like I did write, okay, you know, blue light or pink light or because I, I did, you know, and that, that was something I talked with my collaborator to just this feeling of, of wanting um, wise world to feel kind of warm and inviting and colorful, you know, and to have like those feelings mirror the, the interiority of, of Paul, if that makes any sense, these feelings of opening and the feelings of like what yeah. colors can bring. Yeah. Yeah. You're showing his emotions visually. That's awesome. So I guess speaking of why and Paul, and you said, you know, you ended up casting this actor Finn, who had, I think his first big role was in Dunkirk, right? So he's not, he's been on some, some big sets. 
Yeah. Um, Can you imagine going from Christopher Nolan, Dunkirk, <laughs> to like this? It's like, uh. <laughs> I mean, there's not a, a bigger distance, right? Like, I, I guess if you were making a web series, but like, you know. Um, yeah. I'm gonna un- I'm gonna name drop, but not uh, for any good reason. But I was talking to Jesse Eisenberg once on uh, the set, and he had just shot The Social Network, and I was asking him about just his process as an actor, like how it feels when there's like a thousand extras around him, and on you know everyone's standing still, and someone like hits a button, and everyone starts moving, and he said that. He had made this movie in New York where he played this Orthodox Jewish guy that was like committing crimes or something that was real kind of run and gun. Like, you know, there was the cast, there was like a 10 person crew and they were, were just kind of running and shooting and he'd shot them back to back or something that with the social network and how much he preferred the experience of the first one, that there is something, you know, A, you're shooting probably way more than being in your trailer and B, there's just, you know, there's just kind of a connection. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 Or, or the nicest room in the apartment building you're shooting in. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if you have like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, if you can just throw them on the street. But I think a lot of really great actors do appreciate that sure. experience that you're yeah, putting yeah. them in. Um, well, and, and also, there, I think there's a type of actor that is in it for the reasons that you're... Just, the reasons that we're all in it for, you're like, oh, let's just go make something. And some people are more caught up on whether or not there's a trailer. I'm curious, actually, I know that you do, your leads are are trained actors, but then you do like to work in the world of like real people as well and kind of integrate them into your cast. Um, Do you feel like from a process perspective that the pace that you're shooting at is helpful in that way? And also like, it sounds like from a lighting perspective things, because they're just augmented natural sources, you know, what your, I imagine your sets looked and felt familiar in a way that you know, Christopher Nolan said, you just feel like you're in a spaceship and then there's like a teeny tiny part that's in frame that looks normal, you know? Yeah. I think to be even more specific, you have like these, uh, quite a few rehearsal scenes, right? These people are rehearsing for the balls and they're going to be competing. Um, And those scenes just felt, it felt like you just brought a camera into a real rehearsal. You know, the people are kind of talking over each other. There's an inspirational character that's kind of the house leader that is talking to everyone. It, It, it all felt very real. Like, how do you, are those actors or those real people? Are they half and half? How do you stage that? Well, in full disclosure, I mean, this is the only project. This is the first project I actually worked with actors on. Like, so all of my shorts are non-actors. It's primarily because I think to be an actor in cinema requires you to be really, really, really good. And I just didn't have access to really, really good people. Um, or at least this is what I told myself. So I, and for me, I'm more comfortable working in this way because I can draw from, how do you say, I, I'm quite sensitive to other people's energies. So I can draw from that when I'm directing, if that makes any sense. I intuitively kind of know how to situate myself. Whereas with acting, it's much more cerebral and it's more of a th- sort of thought, a sort of active thought process. And I can't feel anything when someone's thinking, but I can feel things when they're feeling. So, so I guess it's something I'm more familiar with but how you cast non-actors is really important in that like I make sure that I feel a personal connection so it's it is like I'm working with friends I make sure that they have connections with each other so everyone in the cast knew each other like we're probably best friends with each other you know prior to the filming 
And then I'm asking them to do things that are familiar to them. And it's true that the world is familiar. So it's sort of like, here's this moment where you can be yourself. Go, you know, and then things just kind of magically happen because it's sort of real to everyone who's doing it. Do you work with a casting director to find those people or is it more through your research? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the casting, my, the casting directors like Kate and Damien were, I mean, I think they have producer credits because they were so active and involved and they like went to every ball, like Kiki ball imaginable for a year as well. And like, it was just a very, very long process. And also the auditions functioned as a kind of workshop too, where it's like, let's try the scene out. And then, you know, you change it based on them based on who they are, based on, and it's sort of the casting process is, is a way to put the script on its feet and see how it feels and to adjust along the way. Well, so my last question about Port Authority, because I know I have to wrap up pretty soon, is just because I made too many bad jokes about it. But so how how did you get Martin Scorsese on as a producer? Is that something that happened after production, during production? Was it just by name? What What's what's the relationship there? I, w- I want to I wanna mess with you and just make something up. <laughs> Be like, yeah, we'll believe <laughs> what's the craziest? So I was at a zoo and I was looking at a polar bear. Was in Italy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so after I, I don't even know to be honest. I know the producer sent the script to a bunch of financiers and RT features was one of them, but I also know that I put this really kind of moving Facebook post. I just like after winning the CNC, I was just like, it's crazy that someone like me you know, who grew up like with a single mom in like Section 8 housing in Kansas, like won this crazy award. Like, how is this possible? This is insane Um, to make a film. Like, could never even imagine that I would ever be able to make a film, let alone like have this thing. And I think someone uh, in on Facebook saw this and had a relationship to RT Features as well. So you have these two methods, right? Producer sending a script and a friend seeing this, knowing someone at RT Features. And they read the script and um, Sophie Moss, who's no longer with them, but really liked it and had helped to put together a film fund with Martin Scorsese to kind of support the work of emerging directors so Jonas Carpignano, who did like Mediterranean and Achiambra was the first film to be made in this Scorsese film fund. And then uh, they were kind of looking to find these filmmakers to continue this work with him. And I just, I guess through these two things and timing and the project, they became aware of things and then they sent it to him and to Emma uh, his producer, and um, man, I speak with I speak like on first name basis with people, precisely because I don't want to mispronounce <laughs> last names. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. That's why I don't work in Europe. Yeah, I'm exactly. <laughs> and uh, they, it's it's not. Yeah, it's not because I have this like friendship, or it's not. It's not. Important. It's really just to not mispronounce last names. Um, and they they said yes, and then uh, that was that. Were they involved in? Did they give notes on the movie? Anything like that? Yeah, yeah, notes on the script, notes on the uh, edit. Yeah, they were pretty active in all of that. You can imagine the pressure. I tried, I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, it's like your first feature and you have Martin. Yeah, I have the like <laughs> super low rent uh, version of that 
with my movie when we were we were shooting already and we were trying to get a little bit more financing for post and someone's like I know Peter Farrelly like I know this financier he he's buddies with Peter Farrelly like if P- he wants to show some clips from the movie to Peter Farrelly if he likes them he'll put some money in and so while we're like the night after we shoot I'm just like cutting together a scene that we shot that day and putting some like random music to it I haven't heard that story. That's funny. And also, what a weird... I mean, Peter Farrelly, at that point, hadn't made, you know, his more, quote-unquote, serious work, right? No, but something about Mary. I mean, he's, like, sure. an iconic filmmaker. Oh, no, it, yes, in, know, a, in a certain fancy, way. Fancy, but, but I guess what I'm saying is, like, your movie well, is, what is, this is different than Green Book. Green Book? Yeah. You know? But I said, quote-unquote. <laughs> right. But what I'm saying is, like, he's known for, you know... There's something about Mary or Dumb and Dumber. Your movie is not similar to those, I guess is all. I'm no, but but my movie, which is a weird connection to him, was about uh, featured a lot of people that that are deaf, that are kind of specially abled, differently abled. And he at, he had made this movie with Johnny um, Knoxville about like the Special Olympics or something. Like he has he cast a lot of you know differently abled people, and he he really loved the fact that we had like a big deaf cast and all that stuff. So. Um, there was a weird kind of connection there, but yeah, but it, but yes, Scorsese, I think is like maybe two orders of magnitude, uh, h- harder to please <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. Who knows? But, uh, that's awesome. So I know you, you, it came out in 2019 at, at con, right? Um, obviously we had COVID between then and now, and you're in Alaska for some reason working on the Revenant tour, who knows what, but what's, what's like, what are you doing now? What's, what's next? What's the Danielle Lesovitz? the next joint yeah no i i i'm in i'm in a sort of place where i'm like open and excited i have a lot of ideas i think thematically you know i'm really interested in divergent ideas of family and connection and i also i think we'll always probably be interested in how the body shapes social perception. And there's just a lot to talk about with that. So those themes, I think, are still like present and very interesting to me. Are you finding that people are sending you projects for you to direct that, that other people have written that are kind of in, in this vein? Or are you really more focused on kind of writer-director stuff? Um, no, I'm getting, I'm getting scripts. I, um, I'm adapting a book called In the Dark Room at the moment for Portobello Films in the UK. And no, I'm, I'm receiving interesting books and stories. Um, I think I'll always want to write and direct my own material, but I'm also interested in adapting things and, and seeing where, where that leads if I feel compelled by the, by the material. I, I don't, it's hard to know kind of what your trajectory, maybe some, I don't know, you've talked to a lot of directors. I don't know how aware people are of what they want to do or what they want to make or who they are as an artist. And if they're able to articulate that, I'm more of sort of like, I'm fascinated with certain things and we'll see what happens uh, because I don't know that I can verbalize it so so well. But yeah, what what is your, curious to know yeah, how the, other directors Certainly are. there's a spectrum, you know, but the interesting thing is, is that we always are talking to them right around this period in their career. We try to catch people like at what we think is maybe going to be some sort of tipping point or they're they're you know building momentum or something like that and so some of them are very i i wonder if maybe it depends on how many meetings they've taken over the last few months right like how dialed in their pitch of like this is the thing that i do perfect at this thing but we never 
it's rare that we do follow up with them where we find out like, oh, this pitch lined up with the timing and the projects out there and this and that, and now they're, you know, superstars or, or whatever, or if that's just kind of like that they kind of have to realign whatever it is that they're looking at. You know, to me, it sounds like you're very like grounded in terms of um, your approach to things, which I think is really interesting. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think people are like a little starry eyed. And I think openness is a strategy of like, I guess the main theme of this entire interview to me is that you have the confidence to know that the train is moving, right? That you, you're making the next thing and you're not beholden to permission from outside stakeholders. And so that to me sounds like the best way to continue to make things that you're happy with and proud of. You know what I mean? And sometimes I think people get a little foggy with that. I certainly do, you know? We're mainly just trying to figure out for ourselves what we should do next. So we're trying to steal ideas from our guests. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm, I'm curious to know if it, if it is an issue of will of people like, I'm doing this, and then they like go out and do it, or if it's more of like, um, hey, I have all these ideas, and uh, let's see which one um, gets made first. There is a lot of that. And I, I find there's like a big difference between kind of TV directors and kind of film writer directors and... You know, we talked to a lot of commercial directors and I'd say probably about 20% of our guests are also parents and it does seem to affect the projects they choose, the financial Im implications and the time, the travel implications more than other people do, you know? So I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about what the answer is to what's next. I, I just, I like the idea that like, uh, it gives you the sense to kind of make your future, I think, in ways that like, I don't know if other professions are the same way, but it feels really entrepreneurial. It feels like if, at least for me, if you set yourself up to think like there is no path, there is no way of doing this, like you kind of make it up as you go, but you have an intuition that's like hopefully guiding you in the right place, then it's just really fun to kind of see what happens. As opposed to like, at least for me, thinking that oh, I need to hit this point or I need to do that or I need to do that in order to be this thing. It's more of like, no, no, you're just going to kind of invent as you go and see what happens. Well, Danielle, I, we could talk to you for uh, two more hours for sure, but I know we've, we've got to wrap it up here. Do you have a, a few minutes to uh, endorse with us? Sure. Unpaid endorsements. So my unpaid endorsement for the week, our friends have a podcast uh, called Light the Fuse, which is a Mission Impossible only podcast. They're about 200 episodes in and they only talk about the Mission Impossible franchise. You'd think they would have run out of things to talk about by this point, but they are encyclopedic and really go super, super deep. Uh, I've endorsed the podcast before. It's really interesting. It's fun. They talk about literally the marketing material of each movie or they'll talk to the editor, sound designer. But they got Brian De Palma the director of the very first Mission Impossible movie on their podcast recently. And that episode is a real treat because he's a funny combination of a master craftsman, an incredible director, and like a little bit of an old coot, if I dare say, <laughs> and which is like a perfect combination for a podcast guest. He's really funny. Um, so like the fuse, their most recent episode has Brian motherfucking De Palma on it. So uh, that's my endorsement. So I listen to, speaking of podcasts, I listen to 
probably pretty popular show that most people have heard about, but I just want to bring everyone's attention to it. The Ezra Klein show on, on the New York times. Right. But a particular episode by Mm -hmm. the journalist, Anna sale, uh, which is called how to have better conversations about hard things. And I just found this podcast was so incredibly insightful and just ways of like, yeah, navigating those really hard conversations uh, with other people about like sex and money and the implications of not talking about them and how to do those things empathetically. Uh, Yeah, amazing. And it turned me on to her podcast. But man, she's really insightful. That's awesome. Yeah, my endorsement is um, a website that probably a million people know about. And I had like heard of it before, but never really checked it out. And I've over COVID, I've gotten really into like 3D graphics and concept art, matte painting, illustrating, and mainly just feeling horrible about my own artistic abilities, just seeing these like kids make uh, amazing art. But there's this website, artstation.com. Do you guys know about that site? It's like basically the, like if Behance, you know, is like kind of the, the graphic artist's portfolio site, Artstation is more concept art and things like that. And it, it's just, it runs the gamut. It kind of like reminds me of deviant art a little bit, which is just a place where people can post their art. But ArtStation has a, a higher level of professionalism. And there's a lot of people like the person that did all the matte paintings for Avengers will have a page and he'll show his samples or the character creator of, you know, some like a character from a DreamWorks film. She'll have a page and a lot of times they'll even sell like some of the tools they use, like the Photoshop brushes or decals or things. So it's, Partially, it's like inspiration for kind of art, you know, um, and you can just type anything. Let's say you are trying to imagine an old haunted building for a project or something. You can type like old haunted mansion and you'll just find like amazing concept art renderings of those things. So it's art station. Um, and then sometimes they'll like even give you a pack of like, here's like elements to make your own haunted station and it'll just give you ideas to talk to the art department about like what makes something feel haunted you know is it vines on the staircase is it like a broken grand piano whatever it is so just like a new place i've kind of been wasting my time on recently artstation.com just kind of looking through all the all the random stuff awesome well uh danielle where where can listeners find out more about you if they want to keep tabs on port authority and your future projects do you tweet are you instagram what what's your thing Okay, how about this? Uh, I, I, I'm not on Instagram, but I decided this week that I would be because it's kind of crazy not to be. And, and man, there's oh, okay. some stuff I want to show. So uh, yeah, so I'm going to do that. And it's probably just going to be my name. So let's do that. And it's D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E, Danielle Lesovitz, L-E-S-S, like less of O-V-I-T-Z, less of it. Oh, that's a that's an awesome last name. I want the same, but like a little less of it. That's like how you direct your actors. Well, if you want to keep track of all of the things that we talked about on the show, um, you can follow us across all social media at Just Shoot a Pod or go to our website, JustShootAPod.com. And you can follow me at Mr. Matt Elmo. I'm uh, at Smitey Pileg on Twitter. I'm at O'Kaplan on Instagram. And we love to hear from you guys also. JustShootAPod at gmail.com. Please let us know what you think. Anyhow, this episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our social media manager is Derek Aiello. Our consulting producer is Ali Kornfeld, and the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we will catch you next time. Thanks, Thanks guys. Everyone. Bye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.